Let's turn to John chapter 6 today. at verses 60 through the end of the chapter 71. Really, if we, we boiled it down, it's just one phrase, but it's in the mix, it's in the context of this larger section, so we're going to look at that for a moment. So if you're able, would you stand as uh, prepared to read the word of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we ask that our eyes would be opened by the power of your Spirit, that we would have understanding of these words before us, and most importantly, understanding of your word, that of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. John chapter 6, verses 60 and following. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And Jesus said, Therefore, to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who has the words of eternal life? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. I know that uh, some days it doesn't, you may not believe this, I carry the, the great burden of being from southwestern Pennsylvania, so um, English is my first language, and that might be the thing you don't always believe. I have been in the south now some 16 and a half years, I'm trying desperately to speak English in the proper fashion, it doesn't always come out that way. Uh, I've been blessed to be able to study some other languages. Uh, There was a time when I was quite good at Russian. I had lots of Russian uh, that I could actually speak and converse in. And then I've studied for for ministry, obviously, Greek and Hebrew. Now, you don't study those languages to speak them because nobody speaks the New Testament Greek anymore. Um, But you study them to be able to use them. That's a different way of of looking at languages. And as I studied languages, uh, what I learned is that English is is not any... It's not, difficult. it's not a difficult language, as I have looked at these other languages, but English is, how shall I say, somewhat freer in its application of certain words and thoughts and, and maybe idiomatic phrases and things like that. I don't know, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm fixing to tell you 
And as soon as I rid up, yeah, I'm fixing to tell you, as soon as I rid up my room, I'll get to it. And if you don't cotton to my schedule, that's just too bad. But whatever you do, don't make me open this can. <laughs> I'm sure other languages have those kind of phrases in it, but those are just a couple from English. Okay, and, and we all, because we live here, we know those. We, we know what we're talking about, although rid up, I'm not sure. Uh, Jack knows what I mean by rid up. That's a Western Pennsylvania word. Okay, that means to clean up. Okay, R-I-D, I'm going to rid up a room. Well, English has its origin back in the, about the 5th century, just a little history of Eng- English, when the tribes from what we call the European continent, the Jutes and the Saxons and the Anglos came over and invaded what we now call England. Old English, the language there, is preserved in what we would see Beowulf. How many of you have ever read Beowulf in the original? Oh, you are far better than I am, I can tell you that. (laughs) That's like, um, you know, it's hard hard enough to read Pilgrim's Progress in the original, which would be um, more of the, uh, or the Canterbury Tales, which would be the next iteration of English, before we get to Shakespearean English, which would be much more along the lines of modern English. English. Okay, and then came the pilgrims, and they landed in America, which was a new world, and expressions began cropping up, that's one of those, that had never been used in England. So the American Revolution um, not only created a new nation, but also divided the language. What is it? It's a two nations separated by a common language. Okay. Now, in 1781, the word Americanism came into being. It was coined by John Witherspoon, who was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he said, these Americanisms were not worse in themselves, but merely of American and not of English growth. So they were particularly Americanized. Noah Webster published his blueback American speller uh, soon after the revolution, not only teaching spelling, but also pronunciation, common use, uh, morals, good citizenship, all these things were packed into that one thing. And his first dictionary was published in 1806. Uh, Webster died in 1843, and then the brothers Charles and George Merriam uh, kind of bought the rights to that dictionary and published their first volume in 1847. And this became the standard for American usage that there was a right way to say things and a wrong way to say things. There was a right way to use words and a wrong way to use words. Now today, the American Heritage Dictionary of of just a few years ago, that's the the example that I'll use, no longer bases English, English usage on what is correct, but what is common. Okay, there's a big difference there, what is common. So they gather a group of speakers and writers, and they look through all the words that are used in, in, in the English language today and decide which ones should be used in a dictionary and which ones are okay to use. Um, I don't think rid up is, is a, in the dictionary. Um, it's in here. Okay, it's in here. Lexicographers now present their dictionaries as a description of how the language looks at a particular time rather than a prescription of what is correct, rather than a prescription of what is correct. You know, some of the the ways in that words have changed, it is common to use the word disinterested to mean that you are uninterested instead of its real meaning, which is without bias. Okay, I'm disinterested in that. That's, That's common, but it's wrong. 
Okay? Now, not only is our language different from other English-speaking nations because of the Americanisms, but within our own borders we use words that are different. I use some of those that, that might be applied in, in different places in, in the country. Mark Twain, in his, in his notes before the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, says that there are at least 17 distinguishable dialects in that novel. 17 distinguishable dialects in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. You know that you can go to New York or the Bronx and you can hear a certain dialect. You can go to uh, South Carolina and hear another. You can go to uh, Wisconsin and hear something or Chicago. You can go down to New Orleans or New Orleans, however you want to say it, and hear something different. But it is all within that umbrella of this language. Now, all of this is an introduction to the question that I'm going to raise today. How important are words? How important are words? Now, we heard the little ditty when we were growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, it didn't take long to figure out that words can leave scars that are more detrimental than the sticks and the stones. Okay? It's nice to say, no, I'm not affected by that word, but you know you can be. You know that a word from somebody that you care about that is harsh and, and, and you can draw back. You know that a, a compassionate word in a time of need can lift you out of a funk or, or, or a gray state. Uh, you know that sometimes you might overhear something that you only hear part of and you think it applies to you and you are crushed by that when in reality it had no meaning at all to you. Okay, So words are used in a variety of ways. And today we're going to look at some of these words. Now, words in each of our professional disciplines have a, have a particular meaning. Each discipline has a vocabulary all of its own. Um, not being in some of these, I had to look them up. Doctors use the terms anterior and posterior to mean front and back. I think so. Okay. Uh, engineers use words like maximum shear stress. That means the point at which something will break. I don't know why they say at the point at which it's going to break. I don't know. NASA engineers use the word nominal when the rest of us would say normal or satisfactory. Okay? Now, theologians, now we're into something that I'm supposed to understand, have our own vocabulary as well. And we use words that are particular because we need to have a precise definition of things. And in the Sunday school class, we talked about some of those words which you probably have not used in day-to-day -day conversations that theologians use. Expiate. When was the last time you used that? I don't mean to spit. I mean to, uh, your sins are expiated, okay? And Christ is the propitiation for your sins, okay? Or justification or lapsarianism or forensic, uh, these words like that that we use and that have a particular meaning. Now, they are particular because they're very important. And the way that you differentiate one from another, um, as we'll see in a moment, might have meant the difference between burning at the stake and not burning at the stake. Okay? Not burning a stake, but being burned on the stake. Now, as an example, the word justification. Theologians don't all define the word justification the same. In the Reformed view, the word justification, believers understand it to mean the biblical view of forensic justification, that a person is legally forensic, Okay, declared righteous by God on the basis of faith alone. And we know that faith is a gift from our Heavenly Father. Roman Catholic theologian would hold that the essential belief in is in salvation by grace, 
but his view of justification would be different. Now, his view would stem from the Council of Trent in 1546, and it would be based on a two-part formula. One is to condemn the reform view, and the other is to state their view. Okay? First, it is the opinion, I'm quoting from Trent, the opinion that a sinner may be justified solely as a matter of reputation or imputation. Imputation is that which belongs to another is counted to me or ascribed to me. He's, they would say that view is rejected. Okay? Uh, and so secondly, justification is thus defined in terms of man becoming, not, not merely being imputed in righteousness. Now, do you understand the difference? Well, I got some of these and I got a lot of those. It's okay, okay? I understand the difference and I'm supposed to. Uh, I'm supposed to understand because that's the minutia of the theological vocabulary. Words are very important. Understand that in, in the 1500s and early 1600s, if you held a different view of justification, they'd put you on the stake. If you held a different view of the Lord's Supper, they would kill you. If you held a different view of baptism, they would kill you. Kill you. Understand. Now, we probably have some varying views here in this congregation. They might be subtle. 400 years ago, we'd have a fire in the backyard. Okay? That's how serious this stuff was. It was so serious that at one point, you could not have this in your own possession. You could not have one of these in your home. How many do you have in your home? You might have five. I, I don't know. They only kill you once, but you might have five of them. Okay? Let me give you an example. In the 16th century, King Philip II of Spain took a very hard line against those who attempted to interpret Scripture on their own. Interpret Scripture on their own. Anyone found studying the Bible during this time was hanged, burned at the stake, drowned, torn in pieces, burned alive, or some combination of those. Okay? As if hanging was not enough, then they would hang you and then tear your body into pieces. Why? Because you had this in your own possession. The inquisitors from the king were sent to inspect a house of the mayor of Bruges to see if any Bible studies were taking place there. In their search, they discovered a Bible, and all who were present denied knowing anything about it. Then a young maidservant came in, and when asked about the Bible, she said, I am reading it. And the mayor sought to defend her, saying, oh, she doesn't know how to read. She's just, you know, an ignorant servant. And she says, oh, no, I know how to read this. It is a book of mine, and I am reading it. And she said, it is more precious to me than anything else. Okay, this is from the history of, of martyrs. She was sentenced to die by, justification, by suffocation. She was going to be sealed in the city wall. And just before her execution, she was asked by an official, so young and beautiful, and yet you are to die? And she said, My Savior died for me. I will also die for him. And when there was yet one brick remaining to complete the wall, she was in the wall, and they, they looked through that brick and said, Repent, just give us one single word of repentance. And instead she said, O oh Lord, forgive my killers. Words are very, very important. Words. There are 1,337 words in a document that form the basis of this nation. They declared our independence, and we know them. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, 
A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them, these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And it goes on and on for another uh, 1,200 words. You, uh, you should have put that in your memory at some point. Those are very important words. And the men who signed that document and went on to sign others signed them because they were convinced that these words were important and the freedoms that they represented and led them to were worth dying over. Words are important. Let's say men, you or I are out with our wives and and there we are in a booth and we're having a nice dinner and somebody comes by and looks at our wife and begins to say things that are we think are inappropriate or derogatory or just out of bounds. What are we going to do? Okay. I'm going to grab the steak knife and we're going to open up that can, all right? Now, depending upon the size of that person, I might not be happy with that can, but we're going to open it because you don't come and say those words to my wife. Now, we've been certainly willing to fight, and and many people have been willing to die for words because words are important. We've been willing to resort resort to violence often. I mean, guys, junior high, somebody called you a chicken, what were you ready to do? Oh, you're going to fight, okay? We were stupid and 12 years old, okay? But throughout history, a derogatory word, even in adults, meant that at sunrise we would be out with swords or with pistols willing to kill one another over some derogatory word or statement that was said to us. We have seen throughout history that men and women are willing to do many things because of words. Now, what are we willing to do because of the words that are written in this book? As I said, this book is not like the rest of the books in my office. Those books are written by men. Yes, this, one was, this, this was written by men. Those books are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, God may have given them to us in some fashion. They may reflect the teachings here. But these words in black and white, or sometimes black, white, and red here in, in the Bible, this is the word of God. And what are you willing to do because of these words? How are you willing to order your life? How are you willing to order your priorities? How are you willing to use your energies because of what these words say? Now remember the context of this passage. Jesus is dealing with a crowd that is kind of grumbling at what he said. They don't like his words. They loved what he did, but when he started to communicate what was expected, when he began to talk, they began to back off. They could take his person. They could take his works. They could not take his words. They could not take his words. And so they've joined themselves with some other hostile Jews here surrounding Jesus, and they're saying, well, that's, that's all I want. That's all I can take. Okay, I'm not following this guy anymore. Okay, it was okay when he was feeding us and doing miracles, but now he expects me to change my life and reorder my priorities so that they are in line with what he is teaching. I'm just not going to do that. So instead of cutting Jesus any slack, or cutting these guys any slack, you know, some people would want to go to the lowest common denominator. Well, well, okay, those words were hard. Let me back off a little bit and make you feel good about them. Hey, Jesus isn't concerned about you feeling good about what he says, because these words are the truth. These words are from our Heavenly Father. 
And he looks at these people in verse 61. He says, does this offend you? He says, does this cause you to stumble? He asks them directly. Their offense, their stumbling is the opposite of faith. Okay? These words in their hearts are not causing them to, to cling to Christ. They're not causing them to confirm that this is the truth. They're causing them to stumble and their hearts are being hardened by these words. And basically, Jesus is saying, are you sure you want to take offense at what I've said? Okay, these are the words of what? Eternal life. Are you sure you want to be offended by the words of eternal life? Now, do we find what Jesus said to be offensive? Well, there are plenty of things in Scripture that are offensive to our human minds and our human ears and the way that we think and the way that we view the world in this rational fashion. Some of those things are very offensive. Okay? How do you treat your enemy? Oh, you love them. Mm. But in loving them, what does that do to them? Keeps hot coals on their heads. Okay? How do you treat those who want to slap you on the face? Jesus says to do what? Give them the other side. Okay? Will you come with me a mile? Jesus says to do what? Go to. That's not worldly wisdom. Okay, the world laughs at those things. It laughs at those things. Other places, the world just doesn't care. Well, I don't care what Jesus said. Okay, I just don't pay any attention to it. I mean, the world today finds most of what Jesus said to be offensive. Okay, outside a few of his ethical teachings back in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they, they really don't want to listen to him. I think that is why the world in general likes Christmas so much. Think about Christmas. Not only is it a time of, of gift giving, but most people who celebrate Christmas understand that it's the birth of Christ. And how does Christ come at that moment? It's a little baby. And we all like little babies. And, and we know the hard journey that Mary and Joseph had. And she gives birth in this, in this stable. And there they are. And the animals all around. And we've got the adoration of the babe. And they come and give gifts. They love Jesus at that point. Why? He has not demanded anything from us yet. He has not said, pick up your cross and follow me. He has not said, die to yourself and live for me yet. But So people love him as a baby. It's just when he grows older and begins to say things about the kingdom that they don't like him so much. Well, Jesus said, these words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The teachings they have found offensive are actually those things which give life. So that's a dichotomy. This is offensive to me. No, it gives life if you simply have ears to hear the word of God. So Jesus turns to his disciples. I mean, others are leaving from the crowd. And he turns to his disciples basically says, are you offended by these words? Are you going to go too? And Peter, in one of the great confessions, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't say where this confession comes from. Remember at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus asked, and who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Well, here Peter says, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These offensive words these words that are so hard to hear, these words that are turning people away, 
Peter says, these are the words of life. Where else can we go? Nobody else has the words of life. And instead of saying, Peter, outstanding. Okay, that is great. I am so impressed with your spiritual maturity. I am so impressed in how you have have come along and grown in your understanding of who I am. What does Jesus say? I've chosen you. He says, you're here because I've chosen you. He doesn't give them any attaboys. He doesn't say how spiritually mature they are. He says, I've chosen you. And I even know who will betray me. Verse 70, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Many people are captivated by the person of Christ. Some love him when he was a baby. Some love him as an ethical model that that they want to emulate. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of Christ's condemnation of sin, of his moral commands, not just suggestions, but those are commands, who will say that I believe those words from Christ? I believe that those words demand my life. I believe that those words, that those teachings of of Christ demand that I no longer stay the way that I am, that I follow him no matter where he leads. Sometimes the refusal to follow Christ is not I don't understand them, I don't appreciate them. Sometimes I just don't want to go. Okay, Those words that he says are too hard for me. And I don't want to be there. But yet... They are the words of eternal life. The words of Jeremiah. He says, thy words were found and I ate them. And they became a joy and a rejoicing in my heart. To take the word of God is to receive the word of God. And that's really where we see true disciples and false disciples. Those who want to say, oh, it's not really the word of God. Those who are uh, kind of more theologically liberal and say, no, it's not inspired. We have to find the word of God in there. It's not all the word of God. I mean, we're not supposed to follow all of this. When you begin to reject portions of the word of God, you begin to reject portions of our Heavenly Father and portions of Jesus Christ. These are hard things to understand, but yet they are the words of life. Christ never flinched from saying what was hard because they were the words of life. Do you find Christ's words offensive? Will you walk away from what he calls you to do? Or will you find your life in these words, the words of Christ? Let's pray. The words of life are here before us, Heavenly Father. They call us to something that that the world will often reject. The world will often not understand. They will call us to actions that seem contrary to what our human minds want to do. But they will call us to things that are often so far beyond what we could accomplish We think you must be kidding, but yet there are words of eternal life. To put our own will aside and to seek yours. To act in a certain fashion to those who are in need. To be compassionate. To be caring and peaceful. To be uncompromising on these words as well. You never call us to be a doormat. You call us to be meek and gentle 
but wise and strong and unyielding on what is true. Lord, in the average day, we might say thousands of words. None are more important than these words here before us today. None are more important than the word you have given us. And that word is powerful and right and true today, and it will be for all eternity. And you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, the word, that he may demonstrate to us and reveal to us what it is you call us to do, how you call us to live, that, Lord, in all things that we say, all things that we do, you might be glorified. Convict us of these words, Lord, that our lives might reflect the truth that is here. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing together the wonderful words of life. Hymn number 29. 